What's going on, everybody? I am so excited about this episode on the podcast. I get to sit down with Diggin founder, Adam Eskin, amazing guy, has made waves all over New York and beyond with his incredible food concept, Dig In. Check it out. This podcast is brought to you by the one, the only, Athletic Greens. I love Athletic Greens. It is the bomb. Uh, I've been using the stuff for the last three plus years. It is the first thing I put into my body in the morning. It is a green superfood supplement. Athletic Greens is filled with tons of good stuff like 75 vitamins and minerals, prebiotics, probiotics. It's a green powder you add to water, uh, shake it up, drink it down, and it is totally delicious and incredibly good for you inside and out. Uh, Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash born. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash born for 20 free travel packs with your first order of Athletic Greens just for you. Thank you very, very much. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Born or Made podcast. I am so fired up today to introduce a good friend of mine, old friend of mine, uh, entrepreneur Adam Eskin. This guy uh, has made a serious splash in uh, the food scene uh, in New York and moving up and down the East Coast. Um, he opened up uh, a company called Dig In, now known as Dig. Um, and it's literally just taken the world by storm. There's nobody in New York City that does not eat there and love this place, and this dude happens to be a really cool guy, and I'm super excited to have him on the show. Thanks, My man. man. Excited to be here, brother. Uh, thanks for coming. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so Born or Made, uh, just to give you a quick little synopsis of what we do here, uh, it is a podcast where I pose the question, um, do you think, as a passionate achiever, successful entrepreneur, um, do you think people of your ilk, uh, similar to you in just life, things that have, have happened in a positive way, do you think that people like you were born with an innate ability to get to where you're at? Yeah. Or do you think it was made over time? Right. Um, so it's kind of the nature nurture. And when, where are you coming out so far? You haven't <laughs> done a bunch of these things. You know. I, I think it's, I think for me, it's, it's, I have, I have my own thing that I don't really talk about much okay. till the very end, All right. but, and I'm not going to ask you till the very end what you actually think, but I got to say it's been really 50, 50. Okay. It's been 50, 50. Yeah. Um, and I, and I have been truly blown away by some people's responses based on the conversation that we've had. Yeah. Uh, to hear sort of how people like sum it up at the end. Cause I, I think it's, I think you know, look, it could be a, um, for, for people that say made, it's obviously very encouraging for anybody who's watching or listening, right? Because it gives everybody this hope that like anybody can do this. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I, I do actually believe that like anybody can do it, but I, I, I certainly do believe that the, you know, there is a, well, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I Maybe when, a when predisposition. You, when, you, right, when you say born, you get, you know, it's, it's kind of saying, like, well, if you're not born with this, yeah. you know, it's going to be real hard. Um, so anyway, so the way I like to get there uh, with, with my guests is I, I, like to, I like to learn about you and your story. I love a great story, and I think human beings in general have been listening to and telling stories 
for as long as human beings have been on the planet. Um, I think in every community, culture, um, society around the globe, you know, sitting around a fire and telling stories is yeah. what people really sort of love to do. Um, and, and we're in business and, 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 and our business is the goal is really to get people to sit around the fire and have a good time and listen to our story, right? So I'd love you to sort of bring it back to as early as you can remember um, and just tell me what it was like growing up in the world of Adam Eskin sure. in the Northeast, New England. So let's see. Um, I guess to go way back, uh, I grew up in the South Shore of Massachusetts. I was born in a hospital in a town called Weymouth, um, and then I grew up in a town called Norwell, and subsequently Marshfield. Um, my mother, um, she had, when she was growing up, uh, big plans to go off to college um, and uh, leave the Northeast. She grew up in a town called Lincoln. Her father was in medicine. Um, he was a radiologist at a large, well-known hospital in Massachusetts. Um, and he suddenly passed away of a heart attack unexpectedly. Mm. So she made the decision to stick around, um, which um, ended up working out for me because that's how she ultimately met my father, right? They would have never connected had she, had she gone out. Um, but she ended up going to a local uh, school um, in Massachusetts uh, for undergrad, studied education, and, uh, and then became an educator for the next um, you know, 35, 40 some odd years. Uh, so she was a teacher in the Norwell Public School System, which is brought, what brought our family there. Um, my father, um, amazing dad, and we can, I think, get into that because that is germane to this, the made part mm. in environment. And, you know, there's what you're born with, but just like what are the experiences you have and how do they really shape you and how do some of those environmental experiences really do maybe create advantages for some relative to others. Uh, but uh, did not graduate from college, um, you know, has had and held, retired now, but various sales jobs, you know, anything from um, literally selling used cars to selling records management for an Iron Mountain or something like that, right? Um, and so uh, my mom was a teacher. She was an educator. Um, we came up through the Norwell Public School System. Um, and it was really interesting for my brother and I. Uh, there's two of us. He's two, year, two years older. His name's Chris. Um, as we went up through elementary school, we were sort of always dodging her. She was kind of hopping around. Always Patriot fans? Uh, always Patriot fans. <laughs> uh, that, that one paid off. Because <laughs> that's saying, sorry, bud. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we went up through the school system. All of my teachers were my mom's closest friends, which was sort of interesting. Mm. Um, growing up, I had a lot of behavioral issues. Like what? Uh, I just ended up in the principal's office a lot. Uh, I'm not really sure what it was. And like, like actual, like, so were you, like, actually in trouble? Or were you, like, the funny guy just causing, like, making a ruckus? Or were you, like, doing, like, bad shit? I, I you know, I haven't really, I haven't gone that deep in the therapy sessions yet, you know, and unpacked it. Um, my, my, what I think is, it was a combination of, they were all my mother's friends, and so there was just this like young, rebellious thing that I had. Mm. Um, I've always, for whatever reason, had a problem with authority, and have never liked anyone to tell me what to do. Going to the maid thing. Hey, right? like, it's just always been that way. Uh, here, here. Here, here, right? <laughs> here, here. Unfortunately. For better or for worse. Yeah. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, these were her peers. These were her friends. Um, I, 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 I was always very focused um, on, I guess, being thorough or doing well. So I have this very vivid memory. Um, when I was in second grade, uh, Sparrow School, this, this set of classrooms was actually subterranean. So it was, like, down at the very bottom floor. Um, and you had these, like, small windows that were up at the top of the classroom. Um, and we were doing cut and paste. Uh, and it was, um, I guess, an axis or a four-quadrant grid. And um, you had to you know, fill in the shapes with your crayons. And then you had to cut the words and then associate whatever the sentence or the phrase was with the particular picture that you were filling in with crayons. Wow, you really have this fucking memory and, down. And, and um, I wasn't very good with art or crayons, but it was really important to me that I was thorough and that I did things well. And so I, I quite literally went up to the teacher, who was my mother's friend, um, and before I submitted my work, I explained to her exactly what I did, why I chose the colors that I chose, and I wanted to make sure that she didn't somehow misinterpret my work. <laughs> she was like... So can I stop you for a second? So, so that... So I, I have an enormous amount of identification with that, but is that something that you feel is still a huge part of your DNA today? Yeah, you know, I, um, I guess I, I, I wasn't able to define it back then, but I think um, anything worth doing is worth doing well, you know, and if you're going to put your time and your energy into it, you know, you should, you should actually care about the outcome. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, like, it reminded me, you saying that reminded me very, so clearly of currently right now me, when I sit with my older son, Finn, and this has been, like, going on for some time now, he loves those sticker books. Mm-hmm. Those like Marvel sticker books, mm-hmm. like there's like the, all the things, and then the stickers are in the middle, and you peel the sticker and you put it on top of the yep. the, the the empty space that is the shape of the sticker. Sure. And I just I, I cannot I cannot allow him <laughs> to show any of that empty space. He has to put the sticker perfectly on, and so he'll put it on, and then I'll be like, no, and he'll rip it off, and he'll put it on. I'm like Finn, take your time. <laughs> but it's very. Um, well, made look, me think of that. we can commiserate, right? Because I have a two-year and four-month-old William, and uh, it's a really interesting exercise doing coloring book with him. Or you know, you know it's the—I um, forget what you call it, right—but it sticks on, sticks off, same thing. It, it's not—we're not up to shapes, but you'll have a kitchen landscape, and like, where does the refrigerator go? And it's very tempting to to correct him or have him peel it off and do it again. And I'm I'm, I'm trying to demonstrate some restraint because I don't think it's appropriate, at least for me, at two years and four months to be, you know, it's like we, maybe we're not there yet, you mm-hmm. know. But I think about that a lot, which is what is the role I'm supposed to be playing and how much do I just need to let him be him versus kind of like... I was totally there two years and yeah, four months. Right, I was just like, right. no, dude, that's not good. Go. All right, well, yeah. that's one way to do it. Hey, you know, it's like it, it's one of those things that just... but. Anyway, I feel like that that level of like like you said, if you're gonna do something, do it well. Yeah. I, I think that having that at such an age, second grade, um, that potentially wasn't in sort of instilled in you at home is unique. Mm-hmm. You know, the the mom being friends with all these people that must have been a thing because she was in the school system, and I would see her in the hallway. Um, but but I, um, I I guess I found at an early age um, that you know, whatever I was doing or repairing mattered. Um, I also discovered, and I'm not sure where this came from, um, I've always been very competitive, um, you know, whether it was athletics or academics. And the behavioral thing, I don't know if it was just um, sort of um, lashing out against authority, but, that, you know, my, my, 
how I would be evaluated in school, I, I tended to do okay on the actual work itself. Um, but all of the sections of the report card associated with uh, behavior, um, you know, going back to that grading system were always N, which was non-satisfactory. Um, I remember the N. Yeah, the N. It's like, what's, why are all those Ns on so, there? So in, in terms of your academics grades, were you like an A student always, or were you like an 85 B student? I, I was pretty regularly an A student okay. yeah, growing up. Um, my mom was a teacher, um, so I think I also had that, you know? It wasn't just at school, it was also at mm. home. Um, and I, I'm not going to pass judgment or assess, but I'd imagine that it was also important to her for her children to, to do well in, in her school system. Yeah. Um, but I also spent a lot of time. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't like um, things always came naturally, but if I had to spend more time filling in the color book, I just spent more time on it. Got it. How do you feel when you color in with your with your son? Like when he when he colors outside of the lines? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there's a lot of dissonance because, like I said before, he's only two, and I'm I'm I don't. I have this idea in my head of the of the parents that I don't want to be, and I I don't want to be this sort of insane like micromanagey. Um, so I want to give him as much as I can to help him along the way, but I ultimately feel like. Um, our ability to discover things ourselves, you know, and really learn from our own experiences. At least mm -hmm. that's been that's way for me. You can tell me 50 times or till you're blue in the face, but I've always been one of those people that just needs to learn for myself. And I'm, I'm happy to have things break or not work out, but I feel like those are some of the, the best lessons learned. And if I'm, if I'm oversteering him or overguiding him on any one of those things, I feel like that's like a little, in my mind at least, that feels a little too safety netty for me. So you know what's interesting? And, and now, like, like, I mean, I love this conversation, even though it's sort of gone off on a little thing, but um, we're both in the same business. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and in the restaurant business, my experience is the devil is in the details. Mm -hmm. And when the founder, the entrepreneur, operator is focused on the details, typically people that are within the industry or pay attention yep. that are consumers yep. um, really appreciate that. Yep. And for me, I have, I am, a, you know, I just always have been a creative person. Yeah. And so detail or like details when it comes to creative for me and that could be anything from you know what it feels like when you walk into the bathroom based on where the soap dispenser is placed and yeah. where the hand you know where like how you know like even logistics in creative like the way a room feels but also like like if you put the hand dryer next to the sink, every time somebody gets a little too close to it, yeah. it's going to go off yeah. and scare the shit out of people. <laughs> so like, like those little tiny details that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. And it's so interesting that with my sons, when anything creative, even I'm an athlete, but anything creative, for whatever reason, I, I definitely do steer them. I definitely do try to make it a point. Not, not try to make it a point, but I am more passionate about... Yeah pointing out things, like I am in my business, yeah. um, that are not, yeah. like, right. Yeah. When it comes to sports or really anything else, I think, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not nearly as, uh, as sort of... Uh, prescriptive. Prescriptive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's how I am in life, too. Yeah. You know, like, the, the shit that I'm really passionate about is, is the stuff that I, I really care about. And it sounds like 
you had somewhat of a similar situation in second grade. Yeah. All right, so keep going. So uh, went through the school system. Like I said, had a bunch of time in the principal's office more just for, I think, just defiant acts uh, than necessarily causing real trouble. Um, was doing fairly well academically. Enjoyed school. Uh, was playing lots of sports. Um, so started playing hockey when I was in kindergarten, right? A real Northeasterner, a real Bostonian. Um, just came home one day um, with a flyer uh, that they were handing out at school. It was either on the bulletin board or whatever. And um, at the time, my, my brother wasn't playing. He was two years older. My dad historically didn't have a particular interest in hockey. Um, and so it was the Learn to Skate program. And you threw, threw some skates on, and you had an egg crate. And, you know, we, uh, we, 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 we set out to the hockey rink. Um, so it was soccer. It was hockey. Um, it was baseball. It was, it was all the sports that were playing back in those days. Um, but, but, you know, one thing that um, I think is worth pointing out in the context of this type of conversation, um, I had an incredible support system. I mean, I, I, quite literally, when I talk about my family and my parents, I, like, get choked up nearly every time. So, you know, going back to my point, my mom was a teacher and an educator, very, very committed to her profession, um, really cared about learning, really cared about students, um, and was a very involved member of the educational community in the normal public school system. So she was a teacher, but she had five other hats. And so mm. it was always after-school activities, and it was, you know, parent-teacher this, and, you know, groups and organizations Did you guys that. have dinner uh, together every night? We, we did. Um, you know, so to that point, my mom still got home at a reasonable time, but because my dad was always in sales, he had an unbelievable flexible, unbelievably flexible schedule. And so... Uh, you know, while I think it's become much more equal these days, you know, back then, I think, you know, this is, I guess, in the 80s, right, gender roles were more defined, you know, in terms of home and, and work. Um, and in my family, um, no knock to my mom, I, I, I loved her dearly, but she was definitely the person that was much more committed to her career. Mm. And what my father cared about was, was, they both cared, of course, my father really cared about raising us two boys. And I think he knew early on because... School was never really his thing, and while he enjoyed sales, it wasn't like he woke up every day just like wanting to sell stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, for him, it was just a job, you know, and a livelihood and a way to, you know, make some money to support the family. His number one priority was raising us kids. So whether it was hockey practice, soccer practice, baseball practice, um, you know, rugby starting in, in high school, I don't think my dad ever missed a practice, a game, and anything in my entire life. Not one. Um, wow. He made a bag, brown bag lunch for us every morning, right? Wasn't my mom, was my dad. Um, you know, walked or brought us to the bus or took us to school. I mean, literally whatever it took. So I get choked, choked up. Dude is the man. I mean, he's the man. We are homies. You know, it, Still less, the man. Less so now because life has gotten so busy, but up until only a few years ago, you know, we spoke nearly every day uh, over the phone. It's cool, dude. It's just amazing. I mean, just a total role model. And so... Bringing it back full circle to, you know, being a parent now, that's my model. And it, it, number one, it's a lot to live up to. Number two, um, it's what I gathered from it was I felt unbelievably supportive because he was available and he was there. Never, ever, ever told me what to do, ever. 
Um, when it came to academics, it was quite the opposite. You know, sort of this interesting dichotomy with my mother, who was an educator. Um, I'd be the one who was like, got to stay up late to get the work done. He was like, dude, you just need your rest. You need to like take care of your body, take care of your health. It's important that you get sleep. Um, and so it was, there, was, there was never any judgment. I wanted to play hockey. He didn't have a relationship with hockey, but hockey it was. Yeah. And, and then off we went. And so he never really forced me, and they never really forced me into anything. It was just whatever motivated us, whatever we wanted to do, whatever we were interested in, like they were going to do their best. You know, when it came to going to college, you know, whatever it was, if I could get in that I wanted to go to, they were going to figure out a way, you know, second mortgage, loans, this and that to get us there. And uh, to go to the place that I went to and to have graduated only with $10,000 of debt with a teacher and a salesperson for parents is like unbelievable. You know, they sort so of So can I, so, so, I mean, it, it's, I mean, you're, you talk, you talk about choking you up. Like it, I, I'm like getting choked up because it just sounds like you had such a, a supportive, loving Household. It was, and, and so, like, I don't, uh, knowing now I have a lot of close friends, the, the, the majority of the dearest friends that I have today actually didn't have that. You know, that's been my experience, with at least those that are close to me. So I, I really recognized how unique and special that is. And so going back to this idea of how did it come about, you know, was it their day one or not, it's imp- I think it's impossible not to attest some of what I've been able to either enjoy or achieve from a prosperity perspective in life, not to attribute that uh, and, and to that to be a testament to like how they raised us and how available they were. You know? Well, and let, let's just talk about like outside of the support system at home and the athletics, like was there ever moments in your adolescence, let's just jump to adolescence, where you felt like, like thinking entrepreneurially, entrepreneurially, was there ever moments where you were like, you know, I'd love to figure out a way to make money. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. So in, in fits and starts, um, but I wasn't the full-fledged, been an entrepreneur since day one, sort of business entrepreneurship hacking until later in life. So I think what I was seeking was independence, and it goes back to this idea of I, I just I, I never wanted anybody to tell me what to do. I think part of that was because my parents didn't actually tell me what to do, and maybe they spoiled me in that regard. Um, and so I, I, I thought about making money um, as a means to independence, um, more so than necessarily in the early days wanting to build something. That wasn't really part of my fabric. Um, so got a paper out at an early age, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but on rainy days, my dad was like, you're not taking your bike, hop in the car, and I'm going to drive you around. You know, it was like, it was like that, man, you know. Um, so I, I did those love things. Love that guy. Yeah, it's just legends. I got to meet your he, pops. He's a, he's, he'd love to meet you. He's a really good guy. Wow. Um, so did the paper route stuff, you know, bus tables at TKO Malley's. I mean, it's not like we grew up with lots of money. That wasn't the thing, but that's, that's not the thing. It wasn't the money. It was the support, and, and that we'll find a way. If you want to do something, we're here to support you. So busing tables at restaurants in Situate um, Harbor. Um, was your mom, question, was your mom, um, was she strict? Like, was she like, did she structure everything? And your dad was there as a support system really for her structure? I, I wouldn't label it as strict. I mean, she was a teacher, and she was a particular type of teacher. You know, she was one of the teachers where when Mrs. Eskin said so, you, you listened. Um, right, she wasn't just like, I'm just going to be your pal. You know, it was about being there as an educator to, to educate and to help kids come along mm-hmm. and to grow up. And so I, she definitely brought some of that home, but 
we also had an unbelievable relationship. I mean, I, another vivid memory, um, I was actually using this as an example, um, talking with one of our chefs very recently about, about menu development and um, creative in general and this, this idea of um, showing restraint, you know, mm. as actually being harder than adding something. Mm. Um, she used to do you know, sort of uh, informal fashion shows. And what I mean by that was, like, she'd get dressed in the morning like I was, you know, up and ready and getting ready for school. And she'd be like, Adam, what do you think about my outfit? You know, and I'd, like, give her some feedback. And, like, often it was like, oh, just, like, take that one thing away, you know? Definitely don't give your wife any feedback. <laughs> no, she no, you that no, question. man. I've learned the hard way. <laughs> uh, no, it's actually quite the opposite. My, my wife um, does, I think, the... Uh, uh, the wardrobing and the dressing for both of us, uh, and you know uh, where, gotcha. where where that's landed us is mostly white, black, and grays. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, she 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 definitely aired on the more structured side if the two were to play roles. Mm-hmm. But 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 she wasn't a finger wagger. Um, I, I, one of the things in, in thinking back, that you're jogging a lot, um, and and thinking about coming in today. Um, so you ride motorcycles, right? Um, I grew up riding dirt bikes, um, but to the dismay of my parents, you know, my, particularly my father, because he was very concerned about my safety at all times and our safety, um, but, but, but it was just always something that I wanted to do, um, and it was like, no one's going to get in my way, so paper out, save up enough money, first dirt bike I bought was an RT100, you know, 100cc dirt bike, um, flipped over a couple times, dumped it, but made my way through some street legal enduros, and then ultimately had a, a crotch rocket before I actually got into a real accident, and then and then dad put the kibosh on that one real fast. But I, I um, in Massachusetts, I don't know what it's like for you, you could get, you got your learner's permit, of course, before you got your license. And in motorcycle land, learner's permit was you ride alone, not with a passenger. So the day I turned 16, I got my motorcycle learner's permit. Um, and I was, I was driving a, uh, riding a used red, purple, and silver Suzuki Katana 600 to situ of mass to go to my uh, table busing job. And so there was lots of things that my parents, when I said I want to do that from like a safety and my well-being, were like, you know, no chance in hell. Um, I just was really not receptive to no. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't know if you call it manipulation at a young age. I just like figured out an angle and I just like wouldn't give up until at some point they were like, this kid is not going to stop torturing us until we just let him have a motorcycle. So mm. um, I don't know where that came from, but there was a lot of that growing up. Got it. Yeah. So you're, you're, now you're 16, you're playing sports, you're riding motorcycles. Really sort of like building business is not a priority or not something that's really sort of like infiltrated your mindset yet. Um, was academics, was like, a, like you were focused on it? I was, because I, I think that did come from my mother. I, I, I believed that that was the path. You know, uh-huh. like if you got that right, that that would open up a lot of doors. So you did well in high school and then you went to college? Yes. And where'd you go to college? Brown University. Went awesome down, school. Went, went down to Providence, Rhode Island. So you went to college at Brown, and what was it like there? It was incredible, you know. Um, I mean, from the first day we visited, it was like one of those, you know, just like the sea parting, you know, beautiful day, amazing, you know, college campus, big, you know, sort of green archways, that whole thing. It was within an hour of home, you know. Um, I had played rugby in high school, so they had a a great um, rugby program. Um, it was accessible so that my parents could visit, my dad could visit, and, and sort of watch the games, the matches. Were you like a, in high school? Were you like a like a star athlete? 
No, not star. Um, so I, what I carried through to high school was hockey, and then I added rugby. Um, what position do you play hockey? Defense. I was a defenseman. Me too. Yeah. Really? I played, a, I, I played ice hockey for a long time in the city. I'm not sure we ever talked about that. Yeah. Really? Brian Leach was my fucking idol. No shit, man. Yeah. I Ray, was a New York Ranger hardcore fan. Ray Bork, Cam Neely. Yeah. yeah. Big defenseman. I was a big, and I, I'm a little guy, so I was like the hip check king. Yeah. Right at the blue line. <laughs> yeah. Dig my skate in. I could always uh, skate backwards better than I could stay, skate forwards. So I was a good backwards skater, too. I love defense. It was a fun position, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it got to a point where it became clear um, that that it just wasn't going to get me there. Like, that wasn't going to be my thing. You know, I could play and, and hang a bit, but it wasn't going to be what was going to get me, you know, um, over the long haul. So I, I, really, I really focused on academics and, mm-hmm. and really, really studied hard. Yeah. So you're at Brown, um, and you got, you, what did you study there? What were you, what were you in school for? Um, so I, I started with, um, the major was business economics. Mm-hmm. So it was like economics with a, 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 a tint of... Like what did you want to do? At that stage, did you know, did you have any idea of like what the goal was? I had no idea. You know, so you're I, a fucking made guy. <laughs> uh, you're made. You're, you're fucking made because <laughs> I just see like, and, and it's beautiful for me to see and be able to like pick this out because, you know, and I love it for the show. Because I'm imagining you're, you're going to say made. I'm, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm actually projecting my, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my yeah. vision here. I could, it could be born. Yeah. But, you know, you are one of the most successful entrepreneurs I know. There's no doubt about it, right? Like, you just are. I, I, and, and by the way, I think, I think your brand is, like, I'm just, I'm so impressed with what you've done um, with your brand. Because I remember the day you bought the pump yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean like we were there yeah, we at the were, same time we were man yeah. and so I just you know like what you've done is spectacular and most people know um you know and 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 uh, like the fact that you've gotten to where you are um without like you know when I was not, when I was a kid I was uh I was selling everything <laughs> where are you everything <laughs> I mean I, I grew up in New York City and like when I got bored of a toy in second third grade I went downstairs laid down a blanket and, and sold all my toys really full blown like a hundred percent wow I would go to the comic book store the store Alex's MVP they had like a five dollar grab bag uh, you know comic envelope they would put like five comics in an envelope and it was five bucks and sometimes you get like an amazing comic yeah. and so I would go in there with some money and I'd buy like five grab bags and if I, the, the stuff that I didn't like yeah. I would stand in front of the comic book store and try to sell them to the people walking in and out <laughs> like I was just constantly trying to sell hustling hustling from yeah. the day one yeah. and so like the beauty of this conversation is that you were not nope. and you Arguably, or have made one of the largest. Like anytime I read something uh, online about things happening in the restaurant world, you know, digging is there, and so it's just. I, Thank you. So, so I guess what I'm saying is, is that it's just beautiful to be able to see that. Like, no, you don't. You know, not everybody is is this like, you know, diehard like making business decisions at like two years old yeah. you know yeah yeah uh, it's beautiful so yeah. all right so so you're in brown and you don't know exactly what you want to do yeah um and you're you're tell me so i'm um, uh, i'm having a great time felt very fortunate uh 
to have the opportunity to go there for my parents to support me. Um, my, my brother was actually going to a school right around the corner. Um, he was also in Rhode Island, so that was pretty amazing. He was two years ahead of me, um, but we were 30 minutes away, you know, so we had that connection. Um, so family was always close. Um, I was playing rugby. Um, I joined a fraternity. Um, that was an incredible experience for me. So I, I had a lot of anxiety going to college um, in terms of who I was going to be paired with, um, my, my first roommate, um, and that, that dates back to some stuff I went through um, in junior high, which sort of was a sort of a, um, uh, I guess, a defining moment in my life that set me off to um, an all-boys Catholic school initially to play hockey, or that was the auspices under which I had sort of told that. But really what happened was... Um, I grew up in this neighborhood. It was a great neighborhood. It was a cul-de-sac. It was a dead end. Um, a group of us, um, we were friends early days, same grade, a um, bunch of boys running around, always playing football, baseball in one of our yards. Uh, and I remember in seventh grade, um, a new kid joined the neighborhood. He moved from, in from wherever he came from. And for whatever reason, you know, he picked me out as the one that he, he didn't like. And, 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 and I don't know at that age. I mean, we're all kids. Who knows? But, 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 but it felt like there was sort of a, a desire I learned to maybe just sort of take my spot. Um, and so we always used to go to this one kid's house to play sports after school because he had the biggest front yard. and It was flat and it was nice. This new kid? No, one, oh, of, the, okay. one of the OG kids. Um, and this new kid was a part of that group now. Um, and, and I was told there was no, we weren't playing that day. I was like, okay, I just figured we weren't playing. Uh, and I was in my kitchen, which was on the back side of our house and it had you know, windows facing the backyard. And then there was a tree line and then woods. Um, and I looked up, it was the sink, and I saw all my friends there in my backyard. And then I realized they had eggs, and they started throwing eggs in my house, um, which I didn't understand. Um, and so then I went and I got my BB gun. I pulled it out, and I shot the kid with my BB gun. The kid? The new kid, yeah, yeah. And the police showed up, and... Uh, from that day on, junior high was really challenging, really challenging. You know, went from feeling like, you know, life was grand to being very, very, very alone. And so... Because that whole, the whole crew... Gonzo. Wow. Dropped. Just from that one thing. Yeah, in a day. So I think that was, that, you know, I reflect on that has definitely shaped probably a lot of who I am because it's at a year in seventh grade. You know, you're a young kid and it's a, I think those are just very defining, defining years. Um, and so that, that... Did you ever rekindle with the guys? No, no. So what I did was I, I ran away. I, uh, my, at the time, our public school system did not have a hockey program, and because we had now been doing it for so many years as a family, um, hockey was really important to me. It was really important to my father. And so there was this background conversation, which was, do you really want to stay in the public school system? Should we send you somewhere so you can play hockey? Because there is no hockey program here. Um, although they ultimately launched one. And... Uh, so I, I jumped on that bandwagon, but that wasn't really why, right? It was like, I, I got to get the hell out of here. Um, and so I ended up going. We, we, we weren't in a position, of course, to afford, you know, one of you know, the fancier schools. Kent boarding school. What's that? Kent. Yeah, we, it wasn't. That's where I wanted to go. Kent boarding school. I mean, there was. Canterbury. Yeah, there's a lot of, there was Deerfield there mm. and Milton Academy and all these places. So I ended up going, I, I, I was not a practicing Catholic, but I ended up applying to Catholic Memorial in Boston College High School. Uh, both of which had great hockey programs, um, all-boys schools, Jesuit, um, and ended up going to BC High. 
Um, and so my parents put together Scratch to make that happen um, and started anew um, and made a bunch of great friends there and had, a, you know, I think, a, a, a profoundly different experience than I would have had I stuck it out. And who knows, maybe I should have stuck it out. I don't really know. But bringing it back full circle, when I went to college, I had deep anxiety about this starting over again thing, mm-hmm. you know, given what I had, had experienced. And uh, so you get your letter and you open it up and a uh, person's name was, was Roy Cho um, and, you know, obviously didn't know him from Adam and was very nervous and we had that pre-moving in call um, and we spoke over the phone and we realized we just had so much in common, whether it was, you know, interest in the same rap music or athletics. So he was, he was going to Brown uh, to wrestle. So you don't want to fuck with him. So, dude, <laughs> Roy, total badass man. You know, amazing guy, Division One wrestler, brilliant junior national team for Taekwondo. Um, just a, 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 a badass. A badass. Smart badass. Smart badass. <laughs> um, so, moving day. You know, we'd already got to know each other um, over the phone, but met, and it was just like, okay. Yeah, you know, I was like, I was so appreciative because it was just like relief. And, and not only did I, I find somebody that I ended up being roommates with four years in a row. We stayed together for four years, and, and to this day, he's my best friend. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, one of a few, but, but, but yeah. incredible. And uh, um, he also had this built-in um, group because he was on the wrestling team, right? So we already had his homies. And uh, so I was adopted in, and, you know, even the 125-pound wrestlers used to fuck with me so hard, man, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, I was not a small dude. I was into working out, and I was athletic, and I was probably, I'm 190 pounds now. I was 220 at my peak, you know? I was not a small guy. And Beast. They used to just run circles around me, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Just shoot the legs, and it was all over. But it, between them and then, um, you know, the other side of it was a bunch of football players were in this fraternity, Delta Tau. Um, so joined that group. And that, that was one of the defining parts of my experience. It was like feeling welcomed into a group from day one. Felt like I had a network. Um, so I was able to have fun, spend time with people, play sports, and, and really focus in academics. Um, so overall, it was a great experience. I guess the last thing I would say is... Um, Heading into sophomore year, I, I was, you know, I had this idea in my mind that um, my parents were working very, very hard to allow me to have this experience, and I really wanted to make the most of it. Um, so I also, sophomore, sophomore year, I, I picked up a second major, uh, which is computer science, and I, you know, started to learn how to write code and, and do problem sets and, and all those sorts of things. Um, really sort of interesting, critical thinking, solving problems. So I Looking back on it, I think I just I wanted to make the most of the experience that, that my parents were affording me, and, mm-hmm. and I also just loved the idea of being... Can you code now? Uh, it's been a long time, but, but I think what I got from that was an approach to how to think about solving problems, number one. Um, and number two, visualizing things that way. So like you, you can think about visualizing a problem like almost like through like writing code, and it's like a very different way of thinking about how to solve problems. So over- I think that could be one of the most valuable things to learn today is writing code. I wish I knew how to write code. Definitely plan on starting junior early on. Code. You know? Kids yeah. that write code get paid so much cash if they do it well. The funny thing was I completely lacked the prescience to understand how valuable that kind of degree would be. Right? It wasn't uh, even on my radar. But uh, yeah, overall, it was a great experience. 
This podcast is brought to you by 10,000. Now, I've tried nearly every workout short there is over the years and have always been frustrated that it's way too hard to find the perfect pair. That's until I discovered 10,000. 10,000 makes the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts I've worn, period. At the core of 10,000 are three premium training shorts built for all the ways you train. One is built for versatility, one's built for durability, and one is built to be super lightweight and fade away while you train. They've got you covered no matter what you do, whether you're a crossfitter, you do hit, you're a runner, you just lift, weekend hiking, whatever it is, they got you. Just pick the short that's best for you and how you train, and then you get the opportunity to personalize it for your individual needs with custom liners and inseam options. My favorite short is definitely the session short. I use a five-inch inseam with a built-in liner, and it's become my go-to for pretty much every session I do in the gym or out of the gym. Uh, The session is super lightweight, has an insanely comfortable liner, and includes a permanent anti-odor treatment, which is awesome. Every order gets free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. Head over to www.10,000.cc. That's 10,000.cc. Use promo code BORN20 at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. After you put this gear through some workouts, I think you'll agree that these are definitely the best training shorts and the only training shorts you'll ever need. Um, so you graduate college and you step right into sort of investment banking. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This was part of this, and, and again, somewhat anathema to entrepreneurship. It was keep your head down, do work, um, keep moving along, um, and you know these things will open doors, mm-hmm. irrespective of whether or not you really knew what door it would be or what would be on the other side. When you got into investment banking and you started there, like, were you excited? I mean, I'm sure you were excited, right? Because it's an interesting world to be in as a college graduate. Um, you're surrounded by, you know, potential opportunity in a real way. Mm-hmm. But um, were you thinking at that stage that this was going to be your future? Or were you like, this is going to be a stepping stone to potentially own a business at some point? Um, I felt like it was a stepping stone to lots of things. You know, it, it felt, based on what little I knew about the, the, the professional world more broadly, it, it seemed like one of those opportunities that opened a lot of doors for you, depending, you know. Opportunity. Yeah, there's, just a, there's a lot of... You know, historically, you could look at objective data. Lots of people did that and then went on to do lots of interesting things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, again, not a real uh, sort of focus, lacked the clarity to understand where it would lead, but knew that, that it was going to create real optionality if I, could, if I could excel in that way. So I was a, a, a summer analyst at Merrill uh, between junior and senior year and then, and then took a full-time job um, after graduation. Which and how, and how, so how was that experience? Um, you know, I've been asked that a lot over the years, particularly because um, have hired a lot of people into our company, a lot of people that have come to like that fork in the road. Do I like stay on that track, or do I stay on the consulting track, or do I do something more entrepreneurial, or do I follow my passion, or do I get into food, which is something I love? Um, and I, what I what I say is, uh, and have said in the past, um, I w- if I were to go back, uh, I would do that all over again because it, it was really foundational. But it was it was less about finance. Um, what I learned in investment banking um, at that particular moment in time, which is, this was 2003, the year before I joined, Merrill Lynch had just laid off 25,000 people worldwide, so everything was shrinking, but there was no dearth of work to do, it was just a lot of pitching and a lot of work. So 
we were pretty regularly working 90 to 110 hour weeks, which is if you break that down across seven days, it's you're working a lot, right? It, like mathematically, you're working a lot. You had this thing called the bullpen. Everybody was in cubicles. It had a couple sofas and like a dining room table. And so, you know, one or two nights a week, you'd sleep there. They had, a, thankfully, and, and it was one of the many things they offered in terms of resources, they had an amazing gym downstairs. So you'd bring a change of clothes, you'd sleep on the sofa for a couple hours, you'd go into the gym, you'd shower. Is that still how it is? I, you know, I don't, I'm not as intimately familiar, but I, I believe it's changed a lot. Can't imagine it being yeah, like I, that. I, I think they've, they've really changed, you know, this sort of culture of we went through it, you go through it too. Um, I think it's changed pretty meaningfully. The, so just for the people that are, that are unfamiliar with what an investment banker is, actually, yeah. can you just break down what an investment banker is just so we can all sort of understand yeah. what it is? Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, you know, you're, you're in the financial services industry, right? So it's a services business. Um, you, you can perform a range of services on behalf of your clients, which are businesses. Um, and that could be anything from... Um, you, you know, you need to raise capital. It could be in the form of debt. It could be in the form of equity. Um, it could be I'm raising private equity. It could be I'm taking a company public, an IPO. Um, so uh, it could be M&A. You know, we're a business that is seeking to be shown. We want to be shown strategic opportunities because we want to buy another company or other mm-hmm. companies or we're looking to be sold or acquired. On behalf of, of an individual or a business. Uh, yeah, on behalf of a business. On right? behalf of a business. Yeah. So it's all those types of financially related transactional services. And could be any, anything from buy, sell, acquire, merge. All of the above. Yeah. IPO. Yeah. You are essentially a broker yeah. for, for putting these deals together. Exactly. Exactly. And so you could be in the M&A group. Um, so you could be in more of a product group like merchant and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could be in an industry group where sort of you're verticalized based on, I was in global industries. You know, so it's sort of a catch-all for, um, you know, all the industries that weren't captured um, in the more specific either consumer vertical, real estate vertical. So you had these verticals and then you had global, global industries, which was everything else. So, so, so there's, there's in, in the world of financial services, there's investment bankers, mm-hmm. there's wealth managers, right? Mm-hmm. That's more of an, uh, an individual basis. That's, mm-hmm. So the, the, the banker is for the business, the wealth management is for the individuals yeah, for the, the individuals. most part. Yep, yep, managing wealth, managing their capital. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there's stockbrokers. That, and that's more in the wealth management. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, these... these um, Investment banks, they, they, they have historically had, not always the case now, um, trading desks and sales desks. So, um, you know, they're, they're trading debt, they're trading equity on behalf of clients. Um, if there's a new issue, um, if you're putting out a new piece of debt or a new equity, they'll go out um, and they'll sell that to institutional investors, you know, the Fidelities, the Tiros, the world, so on and so forth. So there's multiple sort of components and groups within these banks. But that's, that's I think it's kind of fun just to break it down because I feel like there's, like, you know, you hear these terms and so many people don't have a clue mm-hmm. what what an investment banker is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't know what an investment banker is until I had to hire one. Yeah, sure. You know, like sure. I had no, I, I was like, someone was like, oh, you should hire an investment banker. And I was like, for what? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, so it's, so, so you were in there and you just saw doors. Yeah, and so I, I the things I learned there, one, um, how to push yourself, you know, like, Working 100 hours a week is not easy, you know, and you have to give a lot up, you know. So you're 
missing one of your closest friends' Saturday night birthday parties. You think maybe you'll get out at 11 o'clock and just, just finally get there, and you don't, end, you don't end up leaving Saturday night, and you're working straight through Sunday. So n- knowing that if you need to, you can work for 48 hours straight and just keep going, I think that's a really important thing to know about yourself mm-hmm. as a human being. The other thing I learned, going back to an earlier conversation, um, when you're talking about your creative side, is attention to detail. Um, so a very vivid memory of a particular senior associate, uh, you know, that I was uh, with whom I was working. Um, we were working on a particular pitch, and so these books they could be twenty pages, fifty, they could be hundred pages, and they're very, very iterative, right? And so we put together a framework or an outline, and then you're populating it with content, and then you're iterating, and whether it's an associate or a VP, whoever you're working with. You know, they're giving you red lines, they're giving you comments, and you're turning them over and over again before it's ready to prepare, uh, to present rather, to, to a To run client, a process. To, to, to run a process, to present to a client. And maybe it's not a process, maybe it's just a pitch. Maybe you're approaching clients saying, hey, we have an idea, we want to show you the services that we can provide you. Um, and I remember this one associate, really, really bright guy, um, maniacal about detail orientation. Um, it was like the fifth or the sixth page of like a 50-page pitch book. Um, and the font size in the footnote on page five or six was like a half point off. So I think like, I wanna say something like the font in the footnotes was five throughout the entire presentation and this was five and a half or six. I don't, noticed it. I don't know how he noticed it, but he noticed it. And it was like, okay, this is just a different level, you know, cause it was circled in red and it was like question mark font size, <laughs> you know? And I was like, wow, that's okay, that's, yes. th- that, that's a level, you know? And if, if that's sort of like the high bar for attention to detail, like that's, you know, that's something to learn from. So mm-hmm. those were the two biggest takeaways more than, you know, you learn the financial side of businesses. I think that's important. You learn how to model things out in Excel. That's a helpful skill. Uh, but those were the two things I think were the biggest takeaways uh, from that experience. And then you decided at some point... How long were you in, in investment banking? A year and a half. So um, usually these analyst programs are two-year two year programs. Uh-huh. So your first few months, you're like full-blown in training. So you don't get to touch any work. Um, they have incredibly sophisticated um, uh, companies that come in, and they really train you everything from how to develop uh, financial models and, and work in Excel uh, to PowerPoints and so forth. Um, and then you get into the work. And then you know, you're on an annual bonus cycle, right? And so... Um, I'm really not sure how it works now. I assume it may be uh, similar, um, but you know your your compensation as an analyst, I think, as an investment banker in general, in general, is heavily weighted towards bonus, right? Mm-hmm. And your bonus is entirely based on the performance of the business and your own personal performance. So, everyone, you know, if you're so inclined, your first year you're really focused on, um, and it's it's done on a scale, so they tier it, right? So, th- not everyone can get top bonus. There, mm-hmm. There's only so many can get top, middle, and whatever. So. I was really focused on that, you know, again, competitive, wanted to excel. If you're going to do something well, you know, do something, do it well. And, uh, but I also, um, I, I definitely became depressed. I mean, I was, I was a really, um, you know, a, a person who likes to be in control, who doesn't like to be told what to do, to really, to really not be in control of anything, including, like, how you spend a single minute of the day, that starts to wear on you, you know, and not just giving up friends' birthdays, but parents want to come in to see you, can't see them, things like that. Um, so I knew pretty early into that first year that it was not likely that I was going to make a full two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and part of it was just like how I was feeling and knowing that that, that was going to run its course. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing was, um, 
again, because I, I feel like I'm someone who wants to control their own destiny and, and, and um, is seeking that freedom, I wanted to be in the game, you know? And this is not a knock on the investment banking profession or the, the, the services that, that, that any type of broker can provide, because I think they're very valuable. Uh, but for me, that was not, you know, not being in the game, not being on the other side of a trade or a transaction. So my next step was how do I actually get to be one of the people that the bankers are... like want Just like, I want to be in the game. I want to be playing. Yeah. Uh, and I felt that that, not in a pejorative way, was more refereeing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be refereeing. I wanted to be playing. And so I, I after that first year cycle, um, I, I call it, I, I went on the professional interviewing circuit, Right. <laughs> Which was I, I didn't I didn't know exactly again what I wanted to do. I know I wanted to be in the game as opposed to refereeing. And then what does that look like? Um, and so after the first year concluded, you know, I, I continued to work and, and work hard. And I was very lucky to work for a, a small group of really great individuals that really took care of me, looked after me. Um, and uh, so I started interviewing, and that's what led to my my next professional opportunity. And what was that? Uh, so I, I I went to work for um, a private equity firm. Um, and I was interviewing at a bunch of different places. And what was, what was really unique about this opportunity, they were hiring for what was called a private equity associate, so somebody who was in private equity. So you were, you were in the game in the sense that you were making investments um, in businesses, and then you were either controlling or non-controlling basis. You were sort of participating with the management team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had a real skin in the game because you were deploying capital uh, as opposed to you know, getting a fee for a transaction. Um, so this job was uh, to be a private equity associate, which is very common after you leave as an analyst in investment banking. Uh, but it was also to be one of the two co-founders' assistants. Um, so it's sort of like a two-sided job. And what kind of investments were they making? Like, what kind of business did they focus on? So this was, a, uh, I guess, a, what we'd call a macro-driven fund. So they made a lot of investment decisions based on their point of view around where the world was going. Um, at the time, they were doing a lot of energy investments. They were doing transportation investments, real estate investments. Um, they were also doing a lot of distressed investments, you know, turnaround businesses, mm-hmm. and that's often how they found their way into new industries. You know, find something that's distressed, have no experience in that industry, um, and then get into that industry through that investment. It's kind of fun. Yeah, and that's how I ended up getting into restaurants. So I, I took this opportunity because it was like, okay, this person who has founded, co-founded this firm, um, who's a brilliant guy, has basically said to me, mentorship, you know, something like, you know, young man, Mentorship is really hard to find these days in this business. You know, more, most firms that you're going to join, you're going to be one of many. Um, you know, sharks in the water, and you're going to look around, and everyone's going to have the same sc- scores and skills and capabilities that you do. Uh, what I'm offering you is real mentorship. Um, you'll you're going to work for free. You know, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't free, uh, but it was the, there was a quid pro quo, which is I'm going to ask you to do whatever it is I need you to do, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do it. You know, but, but I'm really going to invest in you. Um, and that was not lip service. Uh, his name was Joe. He was an incredible mentor to me, continues to be to this day. Um, and you know, we spent several years together. But the first six months that I joined the firm, um, he literally uh, pushed a second desk into his office. He said, here's a notebook, and you're going to learn through osmosis. You know, be on every phone call and just like, take notes. And so what he was willing to do is basically you know, you know, attach a tube to his brain and just like, proactively download, at the time, was 35 years of business experience. Did you, did you like, strategically want that for yourself through him, or was it something that he saw in you? Like, how did you get yourself? I mean, like, I could see myself figuring out a way. Like, if I, if I flagged this guy, uh, you know, 
I think as a business person innately, like I have ability to sort of flag certain people in a room that I wanna yeah. engage at some level. Yeah. Did you have that with him, or was it like he winged you? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a conflict of things. One, he, he, he'll say this now, he said it then, I think he saw something in me, um, but he refers to it as, I was a little rough around the edges, which, which couldn't have been more true. Tough love. Yeah, so he saw something in me, saw a lot of potential, but knew that there was a lot of shaping and crafting that needed to happen. Um, and, and I mean, look, his, he was an incredibly charismatic and still is guy. He's, he's a one of a kind, you know, there are no two Joes in the world. And, um, you know, I felt like he was someone that I could really learn from. And it was also relative to, again, I was on this profession, I was professionally interviewing. So I was just, I was just going and meeting and talking to as many people as possible to understand what was out there. Um, and this just stood out as a very atypical opportunity, mm -hmm. right? Where someone was really, it wasn't just come in and get crushed. It was... Yeah, you'll get crushed at times, but like I'm really going to invest in you, um, and you know he did every bit of that and more. So you work with him for a while. How the hell do you go from that? It's just like not an atypical story. Yeah, going from that world and that sort of like that level of stepping stone um, into buying a distress. Although I can understand the distress component because yeah. you ended up buying a bodybuilding yeah. business, Concept. like a, body, a bodybuilding food business, yeah. Yeah. which I would totally appreciate now. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but tell me, let's, I just want to hear that story. So the short of it is, um, as I said before, we were in the distress business. So I was staffed on a deal before the pump, um, and it was a distressed restaurant group based out of California. We bought the bonds out of bankruptcy. Um, we took control of this business. It exited bankruptcy. And these were, these were, it was a parent company that controlled two very, very legacy, sort of old school, three-day part family dining brands. One was called Coco's and one was called Caro's, West Coast based. Um, and so I worked on that deal with another- You did this with Joe, in, in Joe's company? Yes, yeah, in Joe's company. So while I was working at the Joe's firm. firm. Mm -hmm. uh, so I worked on that deal with a partner, another amazing guy who I learned a lot from. His name was Freddie. And um, what ended up happening, it, the, the business got worse before it got better. And so we ended up having to, we made the decision um, to partner with management and, and really run the business collaboratively. And so we would fly out once a month for two, three, four days. We'd stay in San Diego, which, where they're headquartered. And, you know, we'd sort of, we'd focus on blocking and tackling and just the fundamentals. Of, of actually running that business? Of actually running that business. So you guys were almost incubating, or like, or, or sort of, you were not only cash, but you were strategic money, smart money for this company. And it wasn't, it wasn't even super strategic. It was, we just saw a lot of mistakes. And so we said, okay, if we just, if we, if we're just in the avoiding mistakes business, for example, defense only, don't change half your menu without asking a single customer if they're interested in the new menu, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. don't alienate them and then lose 30% of your sales in a year, right? Like don't and do that. And that happens. Yes, that happens. <laughs> so these are the things that were happening. We said, if we just don't do that and we just do things like mm -hmm. if we're going to change stuff, ask people, you know, like one step forward, one foot in front of the other, those types of things. So we, we found some folks there that were open to collaborating with us because mm -hmm. not every executive team is. Uh, we shuffled some things around in the management team, so to speak, and, and we just went back and forth once a month and we were able to slowly but surely just sort of like turn that ship around until we finally had the opportunity in 2005 um, to, to, to sell that business um, and, and exit that transaction fairly successfully. 
Wow. So that was my first foray into the business side of, of, of restaurants and, and, and some exposure to operations. By uh, the way, I just want to mention being in the restaurant business, it could be one of the hardest things to do is to yeah. turn a ship. <sighs> it's like turning the Titanic around when a restaurant is not doing what you want it to do. It ain't a jet ski, right? No. It is not a jet ski. No. Yeah. It, you, you can't turn that thing on a dime. No. no. So that was a great experience. Um, and what also was, was, was happening at the time, um, I was just... I was a person in my mid-20s living a certain way in, in observance of what my friends and peers, my brother and sister-in-law were doing from a food perspective. I knew the things that I was interested in and what I wanted to eat. You know, my, my brother and sister-in-law, I remember, you know, opening the freezer and seeing, you know, Bell and Evans air-chilled chicken fingers, you know. And so the, these things were starting to happen. Um, and so what, you know, the, the, again, going back to this idea of a macro thesis, um, what we said at the time was, um, hey, if we're, if we're going to continue to invest in restaurants, rather than find something that's old and legacy, that is really not the future, you know, that has to be turned around, let, let's, let's try and understand where the world is going, and let's invest in, in that direction from a food perspective. So we, we looked at it, and we said, um, ostensibly, what had happened to grocery via Whole Foods starting in 1980 or 1981, um, it had been unfolding over several decades, hadn't happened to restaurant in the industry, but it, but it was going to. Right? Mm-hmm. There was no reason why this was happening in the grocery aisle. It wasn't going to happen. Healthy food. Uh, healthy food, right? And interestingly enough, um, they were similarly sized industries. Back then, they were both 600 or $650 billion industries, you know, between restaurants, uh, food service, and, and, and grocery. And so we thought we should be investing behind you know, restaurant brands that are focusing on healthy food. But back in 2005, 2006, um, many of the brands that we know today that have you know, very quickly become household names in terms of healthy food, they didn't exist. Right. Right? They, there, there was nothing that existed back then, which goes to show you how quickly things happen when there's a real shift. Right? Which is really crazy to think about, actually. It's crazy. That was not that long ago. No. That yeah. there was literally no household name restaurant that was actually focused on anything health and wellness oriented. Think about that. <laughs> know. It's crazy. Yeah. It is. So we were like, okay, you know, we're investors, but there's nothing really to buy or invest behind. Um, the pump was in our backyard. It was five units. Um, husband and wife, incredible, passionate people. Spent 10 years building this thing. Um, were they bodybuilders? They were not. Uh, they were not, you know, but Steve, fitness was an important part of his life. Um, and he was just a really big believer in eating this way. He really was. Um, and, you know, I had also been a customer from my investment banking days. So when you were in investment banking, if you stayed past 7 or 8 o'clock, you got 20 or $25 stipend to order meals in because mm-hmm. uh, you were going to be there till midnight, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And so I, I, would, I would order from the pump, you know, as an investment banker. So I, I knew it from back then. Protein shakes, egg white omelets, all the things. Right, right, yeah. And so we, in our maybe not-so-infinite wisdom, thought, hey, it's in our backyard. It's a small business. While this isn't exactly what we're talking about, like what could be so hard, let's just kind of evolve it and reposition it and, and we can grow it. Um, so we looked at it and we said, okay, this is a good idea. Um, and we, we, we worked on it on, on a deal with, with the, the founders and the owners. Um, and then the, the operating partner with whom we were working to evaluate restaurant opportunities took another job. And so we were at the, whatever, 10-yard line, 5-yard line, getting close to the goal line. 
with this very small deal that we were evaluating the pump, and we suddenly had nobody to run the business. And uh, you know, that's when you know, sort of Joe and I collectively raised my hand and said, you know, parachute in for a year, um, get an office open, start to hire a team, get the business up and running. You know, what you don't know, you'll figure out. And it'll be incredible experience for you as an operator that you can bring back, you know, to your seat as an investor. Um, and I thought, that sounds amazing. Sign me up. I was living that way. I was really into fitness and wellness. I was uh, a consumer of theirs. And, you know, back then, they had an unbelievable cult following. Um, I remember, you know, like daily delivery to the Howard Stern Show. And he always used to talk about it, right, in pictures of... I don't know, Brooke Shields and Jerry Seinfeld up on the wall amongst all the bodybuilders and these tiny 500-square-foot restaurants that had lines out the door every day, right? And the reality was, this is not a knock. The food was not good. Um, but there was a real lack of options back then. You know? Eva's and the pump. And, and so Steve, one of the two founders of the pump, Steve and Elena, the husband and wife, Steve's family owned Eva's. That's where the pump came from. Really? Yes. I did not know that yeah, story. I mean, ostensibly, Eva's spawned the pump. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh. So, you, you, so your your firm ends up taking on, the, buys the whole entire company, or just buys a majority, or what? Yeah, uh, nearly a majority. Okay, so yeah. nearly nearly a majority. I mean, near, nearly nearly the whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah, yeah. They're in for yeah. five to seven percent. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yep. And so, so uh, you come in, you start operating, and. Not good. <laughs> it was not good like it was not good because you didn't feel like you were an operator or not good because there was just a ton of shit that you didn't know how to do and you were like chasing your tail. Um, it was a lot of things. It was we didn't quite have visibility on maybe all the things that we needed to have visibility on before we acquired gotcha, the business. Gotcha, gotcha. That was a challenge. Yeah. Um, like super duper bad? Yeah, like, you know, just... The recipes weren't exactly right when we gotcha. found out what was in them. That was, uh, that was problematic. Mm. Um, so this was in an age when nutritional disclosure was becoming a thing. Yep. 06, 07, 08. It was like nutrition labels. People care. What's in my food? We were supposed to be like the health food company. Yeah. So problem. Um, we called it the melting ice cubes. We were losing gas faster than we were keeping them because we just it, the operation was not sound. You know, And so I think one of the things that when you have founders that are controlling a business that are so passionate and just like doing the work every day, you know, one of the things that Steve was great at was promotion, you know, and just like getting out there and just bringing new people in. But when we finally, you know, got into the business, we learned, you know, this was these, these, these uh, restaurants that had like 150 menu items on them, it was total mayhem and they were not sustainable. And typically, I, you know what I've learned also, and, and, and myself being the, a great example of this is, you know, the founder... You know, a guy like me who's really passionate about doing a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, specifically when I launch a business, like I'm so in. I'm yeah. like, I, I, I am the, I am a creative entrepreneur, but I also am an operator. I mean, I, I've, I operated as a technician for yeah. many more years than I actually have owned restaurants. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm doing things, and I've gotten a lot better at it now, but when I'm doing things, I forget to show other people how to do them. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? Indeed. Yeah. You know, then the third thing, which is probably the biggest and the hardest lesson, is um, I think the combination of a little bit of hubris and feeling like we we knew better or could do it better or could do it better than the founders, right? Um, like, how hard would it be to just reposition the business? You know, that was more bodybuilding. The world was headed in this direction, and and we really didn't understand both how challenging that would be 
um, and and really how um, uh, significant the shift from eating that way to eating what let's call whole foods or sort of omnivores lemma, Michael Pollan, Alice, Alice Waters type food. And so we, we were just, I think we were cavalier um, and inexperienced in, in understanding sort of that shift in that evolution. We mm-hmm. just figured, oh, what could be so hard? Uh, turns out, very hard. Um, so within the first year, we discovered all these things and it was really a fork in the road, which was... Um, call it a day and, and go back with our tail between our legs, or embrace the thesis, which not only remained intact in terms of this idea of healthy eating, it was strengthening. You know, every day it, it, it seemed to be more validated that this is where the world was heading in terms of eating food, um, but we would have much more work on our hands than we thought. Um, what year was this? This was in 2008. 2007. Scary year. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> So you also had the macro backdrop, which is like the world was falling apart, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so you wanted to eat donuts and fucking... Oh, dude, and this was just one of those moments where you definitely, you definitely find, figure out what you're made of, you know? Um, I mean, it, it was, there were several moments when it was very dark. I, mean, mm. I remember getting, you know, on two occasions calls, which was, you know, we're, we're, there's no more money, we're shutting down the business. Uh, one of them, I actually left work um, and met now my wife, at the time my girlfriend, and we just went out to lunch and had cocktails because I just was like, I can't, I can't believe this is the end, you know, but, you know, woke up the next day, you know, sort of fought my way, you know, out of that uh, situation, begged and pleaded, you know, we're not done yet. We can figure this out. We can solve it. Um, and, you know, that's really, you know, when the, the journey started, you know, one or one or one, one and a half plus years in, it was, okay, we, we have to basically start over. We really believe in, this opportunity, uh, we have a lot to learn, um, but but we can do this. Um, and you know, the next call it eight or nine years is how we've gotten from where we were to where we are today. Man, what a sensational story, dude! It's like one of those things where, like, you know, a guy like you buys a brand like the Pump, um, and to see where it was. To know that the pump evolved into dig in actually um, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I could see it, no problem. Me, I could see it. Mm-hmm. But then having to take on the guys in the suits and being like trying to explain that you're gonna <laughs> that the future is what you have created, which is actually accurate. Yeah. Um, from uh, you know an egg whites and protein shake spot. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, that's insane, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, it's been a journey. Dude. And so how many units now? Uh, so I, we, we just broke through 30. Um, so we'll, we'll, we've got a few more to open by the end of this year. So we'll end up somewhere in the low to mid-30s. And you're in New York, New York Boston. Boston. We're opening Philadelphia Philly. um, next month. And we have one, one suburban location in, uh, in Westchester, in, in Rye Ridge. Um, in next year, um, looks like based on leases we're signing now, um, we'll be uh, headed to two more markets in addition. So by the end of next year, we should have somewhere in the, you know, call it 45 plus range and, and in five cities. And uh, we have a few different really exciting now coals in the fire, um, given how we've grown the business and how we've really been able to think about what's our reason for being, what's our mission, like what's, what, what are we here to do besides just like building a company? Um, you know, our, our mission, this idea of rebuilding the food system and, 
and really learning over the last eight years that the, the, fundamentally the way to do that is to do that through vegetables, you know? Um, and that, you know, ecologically, from a sustainability perspective, from a cost perspective, from an access perspective, uh, from a nutrition perspective, um, that, that they're really, really, really powerful. Um, that's, that's where we've placed our bet. And so mm-hmm. <clears throat> going forward, really, we'll, we'll, we, we think about not just scaling quote-unquote fast casual or fine fast restaurants as a chain, but we think about it more holistically as we've been building a platform um, over the last eight years that supports growing and cooking real food, uh, predominantly vegetables. And, um, you know, whether we serve that to you in a fast casual restaurant environment, whether we deliver that to you, you know, through some type of delivery service, uh, catering, um, whether we offer something more experiential, like a full service, where we'll open our first full service restaurant uh, later this year in the West Village, um, it's everything is now through the filter and the lens of does this support rebuilding the food system? Does it support doing it through vegetables? Is it is it built on a platform of growing and cooking food um, and and supporting the people behind those two things? Um, and so we 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 feel like we're just getting started, which is a little bit cliched, but you hear that a lot. Um, but you know, relative to what we believe. The opportunity not just to grow a business and a brand and a culture, um, but the opportunity to have impact on the food system at large. Um, there's a lot of work, and we think we can do this. We can be doing this work for decades to come. My man, inspirational. Uh, yeah, I don't know how else to sum that up. Um, that sounds like an incredible mission, um, and I, I mean, I don't think I know that you're on your way there. I mean, just you know. I'm at Dig In often. Yeah. It's my, you know, and I'm like a, you know, I think people would put me in a, a poster boy sort of vibe for, for this style of, of food that you guys serve there. I mean, it's what I do, um, and I believe in what you guys do. Um, so I'm going to ask you the question. Yeah. We're here at the finish line. Are you a born or made guy? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if this is uh, going against the grain or the rules or... Can't say both. <laughs> you, you can say whatever you want, man. I'm not going I mean, to tell you no. I, I'll <laughs> tell you, I, 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 do, I do, I fundamentally believe um, that it is, um, it, is a, it is a combination. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if, if I were to lean, um, I would lean absolutely more towards made than, than born, you know, because I, I, I believe, you know, we as humans... Um, Particularly in in this country, we have the opportunity to make choices, you know. And um, I feel like um, I've I've been given a lot. So born not just whether it's raw material or makeup, but I also believe I was born into a very fortunate situation. That when you think about the opportunities that eight or nine billion people across the globe have, not everybody was afforded what I was given. You know, mm-hmm. my parents. You know, sort of like what they offered me. You know, sort of um, how intact my home life was, the support I got, the willingness they, they the, the willingness they they had to just sort of push and and and, um, and support. So that is, I think, a big part of the born equation for me. Um, but the other side of it is, I'm a really big believer in hard work and not giving up. You know, like I I I, I and we at Dig at this point, from a values perspective, truly believe. Anything is possible. I mean, like, we're not putting somebody on the moon, but we think anything is possible, and that's how we wake up and go to work every day. You know, it's if, if there's a problem to be solved, we think we can figure out a way to solve it. Um, and so there's, there's a resiliency to our culture that we, we also look for when we're thinking about hiring and recruiting people. Um, and I think a, a lot of that does boil down to just 
being willing to roll up your sleeves and do the work, you know? And so I think for anybody, you know, watching, listening, or just like thinking about being on that path, um, I, I, it is a combination, but I lean heavily into made because um, if, if you do the work um, and you don't give up and you're really committed, you know, I think we're, we're a good example that going from where we came from to where we are now, anything's possible. And if you were a betting person, you know, uh, 11 years ago when we started on this journey with the pump, I, I, I don't think um, it would have been probable that we would have ended up where we are today and where we're going. And uh, it's, it's only for a bunch of really talented, hardworking, committed people that wanted to make this thing a reality, you know? I like it. Yeah, man. Adam, thank you, man. Thank you, brother. If you have not been to Dig, you must go. I'm so excited about the restaurant, too. Yeah. I'm so fucking excited about the restaurant. Um, anyway, man, thank you so much. This has been a blast, and I think we got a lot of good stuff here. Um, and I love to leave a few things just with the, uh, the people listening. I think one thing that I really pulled out, and you said it, it was somewhat of a thread throughout your, your story, you know, if you're going to do something, do it well. Yep. And I think that that is so simple, um, almost common sense, um, and overlooked far too often. Yep. So, if you're going to do one thing, do it well. If anybody knows how to do that, it's this man right here. Thank you, man. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed it.